Acts chapter 22, picking it up in verse 30. Uh, The chapter break kind of fell in an odd place. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 30, and we're going to read down to um, around verse 12, although we're going all the way through the chapter. So if you'd bring up that scripture, um, uh, either in your Bible or here on the screen, you can follow along with us, and then we'll read it together to get some context. The Word of God reads as follows the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, But the Pharisees confessed both. And there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes who were of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to all that you have for us as we study today. And Lord, may you, as the psalmist said, uh, allow us to behold wonderful things from your word. May you speak things, Lord, that we all need to hear. And may you speak things that individuals need to hear. For you can do that, Lord. You can do such things. Perhaps there are some here this morning with just questions upon their heart. Not knowing that as they walked into this room today, you're going to speak to them. What a wonderful thing, God. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we have... uh, come to this place, Paul's third missionary journey ended, and he had this desire to go to Jerusalem for a long time, and we looked into some of that a little more in depth last week, looking at some of the other passages that talked about that. We looked at some of the passages from Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul talked about his love and his desire and his zeal for his brothers and uh, the, the Jewish brothers. And he knew that since the gospel had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and of course the Jerusalem church was founded, that there were many Jews who had believed in Christ. And they had become, as we would call them today, Messianic Jews. But there were so many more who did not believe. And Paul, being a Pharisee and understanding these things and having in his own way been lost for so long, He had the word of God in front of him, and he missed all of the signs. He missed all of the prophecies of the Messiah. And so he was so passionate, just thinking, if if I can explain to them as someone who has seen the light, if I can explain to them uh, from their point of view, then they will understand, and they will hear, and they will believe. And that's what has brought Paul to this point. And we reviewed the fact 
that on this journey, coming out of the third journey, going back to Jerusalem, that all along the way, the Holy Spirit was prophesying to him that when he got back to Jerusalem, that there were going to be chains and affliction that awaited him. And remember, the Holy Spirit was testifying in every city, and Paul knew that the Spirit was giving him that warning so that he could be prepared. And the Spirit was not telling him so that he could avoid what was going to happen. There were many people who, as they heard those words along the way, they began to say, Paul, don't go. If you know that this is going to happen, then don't go. But Paul said, what? You're ripping my heart out. Don't you know that I'm, not, I'm ready not only to, to be uh, beaten and to suffer for my Lord, but even to die for him? I'd also like to point out something as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning. Perhaps you know these Scriptures, but I'm going to read them to you just to sort of set a context, a framework for us today. The first one is from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that reads as follows. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God and the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the word of God is vitally important to who we are. That's why it's so important to read God's word. In Romans 15 verse 4, Paul wrote, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So the scriptures are there not only as, as we read in 2 Timothy 3, you know, profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness to equip us, but Paul writes in Romans 15 also for our learning that when we read about what happened to people who went before us and we read of their stories and we read of their failures and we read of their successes, that all of these things were written for our learning so that we might be prepared. And it says there that the scriptures bring us patience and comfort and that we might have hope. Then in 1 Corinthians 10, in a similar way, he says, now these things happen to them, speaking of the Hebrews in Egypt, as an example that, uh, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of, ends of the ages have come. So three places, there's others that tell us that what has happened in the scriptures, what has happened to people before us, is there for our encouragement, for our edification, for our learning. You probably know the old story, the old saying, that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. There are four important things here this morning that we uh, will learn about the Apostle Paul and about the things that he says and does. The first thing is about the conscience. He's going to talk about the conscience a number of times today. In fact, Paul speaks of the conscience in the New Testament more than any other writer. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus' personal encouragement to Paul and how that applies to us. Three, we're going to see Paul's faithfulness over the many years, his perseverance, and how he did not give up as there was uh, opportunity, of course, as he was persecuted and went through so many trials, he could have given up. He could have just said, I've had enough of this. But instead, what happened is he persevered faithfully. And then finally, we're going to see God's sovereign and providential care in Paul's life. So here we are in 2230, the next day, uh, because he wanted to know, speaking of the centurion who had uh, pulled Paul back previously, uh, he wanted to know why Paul was accused by the Jews because Paul had, of course, spoken to them in Hebrew and he didn't understand what they were saying. So he, uh, Paul also, as he was about to be beaten, remember, he said, I'm a Roman citizen. Are you going to treat me this way? And of course, they, out of fear, released him from his bonds. And now this commander wanted to know for certain why he was being accused. And he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before then. So this commander has essentially set up a tribunal. So uh, a good portion of the Sanhedrin has come down from Jerusalem. This is the setting. And the commander is going to sort of arbitrate, and he's going to oversee what's happening, but he set Paul before them. 
And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. First of all, let's again sort of put ourselves in the situation. Imagine you are being brought before people who hate you with such hatred that they want you dead. Not because of a crime you've committed, but because they don't like what you're saying. They don't like the ideas that you're expressing. They don't like your understanding of God's word. And so Paul, as he is sitting before these people, he's going forward. The Holy Spirit has prepared him that these things were coming. And he's going to sit before people and have to defend himself and defend the Lord and defend the gospel. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the other side of the table or on the receiving end of someone who is just vehemently angry. I have more than I care to, to remember. And unfortunately, too many times it has been at the hand of people who are allegedly believers in Christ, not people who hate Christ, not people who are rejecting the gospel. I could take that. But so often people, like Paul is facing here, people who he considered brothers, so to speak, and so these, if you've ever been through that, listen, you know what it's like when someone is just, they're just angry at you and they want to take it out on you. And that's what's happening here before Paul. So, you know, like Paul, I'm sure, although we're not told in the text that he prayed and said, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and prepare me for this moment that I might shine before these people and that they might understand who you are by how I conduct myself. You see, how we conduct ourselves under extreme circumstances says so much about who we are. It says so much about who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus is the one who said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we speak, how we speak, the attitude and the tone with which we say things is so important. So Paul, sitting here before them, begins by saying, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Who can say that? Who can say such a thing? Paul's not saying, by the way, that I'm perfect. He's saying that before God, whenever uh, I've done something that has been you know, wrongful or sinful, the Holy Spirit's convicted me, and I've dealt with my sin before God. In other words, I've maintained a right relationship with God, not that I've never sinned. You see, this is one of the purposes as we get into the conscience, uh, of the conscience, to, to help us understand when we have veered off the track, when we are not doing what God wants us to do. What is the conscience and how was it formed and how does it affect and govern our thoughts and our decisions? You know, we have a, a moral consciousness, a moral compass, hopefully, within our lives. Certainly some people do not. The people who are brutal murderers and, you know, adulterers and, and all those kinds of things. But we have this moral consciousness, this moral compass that guides us with what's right and wrong. And we should listen to that. Every person should listen to that. We have, we have an inner judge, an inner witness that helps us understand when we're doing right and when we're doing wrong. Something that helps us to distinguish between good and evil. But the question is, what is the standard by which the conscience is set or programmed, if you will? You know, we all understand standards. We all understand them in, in our workplaces. You know, there's a standard on the freeway called the speed limit, which most of us view as a guideline. But you know, when you buy something at the supermarket and you have to weigh it, you expect that the scale is accurate. A pound is a pound, an ounce is an ounce. There are standards. Where do the standards come from? Well, for us as believers, it comes from the Bible, from the Word of God, correct? This is the standard for our conscience. And here's the problem. When we, when we become believers and, and we come to Christ and we've had all those previous years of living in sin and living in unrighteousness, often there is this conflict that we encounter with our conscience because we have this thing from maybe the way we were brought up, which has nothing to do with the Scriptures, Maybe even if you were brought up in a religious home, but it has nothing to do with the Bible. And then we have this, well, I don't want to do that because I just don't feel right about it. 
well, you don't feel right about it because it was the way you brought up, but not necessarily because it's according to the word of God. And so it's important for us to understand God's word. You see, we, we read God's word for many reasons. One, we want to get to know God. This is his love letter to us. But also, it, the more we read God's word, and I hear people say this all the time, you know, as I read God's word quite often, I don't understand the things it's saying. Well, that's okay. Just keep reading. If you think about any subject in life, the first time you were learning something new, you didn't automatically understand everything you were reading and learning, did you? And that's what the process of learning is all about. So as we read God's word, we read it. And if I don't understand, I just say, Lord, help me. And I keep going and I keep reading. And what we don't realize is God gets his truth into us. He gets his word into us. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now the conscience is not infallible, but this sort of points to the fact that God has put a conscience in every person's life. In fact, the chapter before this in Romans chapter 1, doesn't God go through this great length to point out that every person knows something of God? We understand the general revelation of God, that the heavens have declared the glory of God. We also understand that even though someone may have been brought up completely heathen, completely apart from God, that there is still this sense of of God awareness in people's lives. I think when people proclaim to be atheists, that they're really lying. Because there is some awareness. You're denying something that you say doesn't exist But basically the world around you says that it does exist and many, many people in that world bear witness to the fact that God does exist. One commentator said the conscience does not make the standards, it only applies the standards of the person whether they are good or bad, right or wrong. So it's so important for us to have the right standards. And what are the right standards? It's the word of God. Uh, as I was looking through this and just looking at all you know, the examples of Paul speaking of the conscience, um, it's just overwhelming. And if you like to do that kind of thing, just search on the word conscience and just read those uh, references to it and see how it's spoken of. It's interesting, uh, I'll share this one with you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, that is apostasy, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And what that's pointing to is the fact that if we violate the conscience and we violate the truth of God's word over and over and over, that we can reach this place in our lives. And this, I share this by way of warning for all of us, as it says here, having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron. Perhaps you're familiar with the term cauterized. It's when heat is used to, you know, to stop something from bleeding or you know, to seal up a wound or whatever it might be. And so the word here that's used for having their conscience seared or cauterized uh, can also be translated to mean to be rendered insensitive or unresponsive, essentially dead. And so when you come to a person who is in this state, you know, God help them, God help us, you know, if, if he might, by way of mercy, you know, resurrect that conscience. But when somebody's reached that place, they've reached a place, as God spoken of, spoke of Moses in the Old Testament, excuse me, of uh, Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Remember, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart toward the Lord. And God would send Moses in to do a set of miracles or to send plagues and to do these things before the court of Pharaoh and Pharaoh would try to have his magicians duplicate it. And the scriptures say that every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But we come to that one place where it says, then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
Because the Lord saw that Pharaoh wasn't going to turn. He saw the end of his path. He saw that this man wasn't going to repent. And that is the same as what we're seeing here when it says that, that these people, as Paul is speaking of in 1 Timothy 4, have their own conscience seared. They've reached a place where sort of their, their unhealthy and unsavory destiny has been sealed. So Paul now saying before these people, before this congregation of uh, elite scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, I've lived in good conscience before God all my days. They were so offended by that. Here's how his, his message begins. And he gets slapped in the face, literally. And the high priest Ananias com- commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And you command me to be struck contrary to the law because the word of God said when somebody's on trial, you don't strike them before they're convicted. And so Paul is saying, you're supposed to be, you know, the one who's here to execute the law, to oversee the law, and yet you're already operating outside of it. Your anger has blinded you and caused you to act irrationally. And when he said, you whitewashed wall, he's referring to the fact that when people would come into Jerusalem for the feasts, there there would, of course, be tombs all over the place, and they didn't want someone to... Uh, inadvertently brush up against or come in contact with a tomb or a grave because as they were coming to the feasts, they were supposed to be ceremonially clean. They were coming to worship God, so they had this idea that they had to purify themselves and they had to be completely clean. And so what they would do literally is whitewash the tombs and the little boxes that held the bones of people to make sure that someone didn't accidentally come up against them. And then Jesus, of course, took that and used it in Matthew 23 when he spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but instead you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, you're not who you say you are. You are people who are filled with hypocrisy. And so uh, Paul is using that same idea here saying to them, you pretend to be something that you were not. And then verse 4, those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul, of course, knew this, but he didn't know that the man who was doing this was actually the high priest. And we said, well, how was it that Paul wouldn't know that? You know, we might think, you know, sort of in terms of a high church kind of a thing that the, the bishop or whomever, the cardinal, you know, they're, they're wearing clothes in a certain way that it's obvious that person is sort of the person in charge, but not so in this situation. Uh, if you've seen any of the, the Jesus uh, movies that we've, we've shown here, uh, so often they would just wear this black attire. So it wasn't that they necessarily had something that would distinguish the man who was the high priest. And of course, they were high priests just for a time anyway, for a short period. And so Paul, having been away from Jerusalem for more than 20 years, probably was not aware of and in touch with who was the current high priest. And so Paul, of course, says, you know, I didn't know who the high priest was. He did admit his wrong. He says, you know, obviously, I would not have said that to him if I had known he was the high priest. Verse 6, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, now Paul was wise, wasn't he? We have already seen how he used things to his advantage. Uh, He's already admitted to the fact before they were going to scourge him previously that he was a Roman citizen and they didn't have the right to put him through that process without a fair and a proper trial. And so here, Paul is now perceiving as he's before the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that uh, they are a mixed bunch. And he, of course, understood that they uh, did not like one another. It's odd, of course, that people bond together in in certain times just so they can create a common goal and and accomplish it. But here uh, he realized one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees. So he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. 
And so what he's saying here to them is simply this, not only am I a Pharisee, but I come from a lineage of Pharisees. So Paul is saying that his father was a Pharisee. In fact, the original language would not say the son of a Pharisee, but the son of Pharisees. So that would imply his father and perhaps even his grandfather and perhaps even his grandfather before him. So Paul is appealing to the fact that uh, for whoever was the greater majority, and it appeared to have been the Pharisees, he was saying, I'm one of you. And so when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. There's lots of things we learn about the Pharisees. They only held to the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in these things that are mentioned here. And they had a very narrow view on a lot of things. But it was also true that the Sadducees were really considered to be, uh, from a religious perspective, the liberals of their day. They didn't take the word of God seriously. But the Pharisees, uh, you know, we look at them in somewhat of a negative light. But the Pharisees were actually the biblicists. These were the people who believed the word of God and who held to the word of God. They were just misguided. They were just blinded. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 5, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it's they that testify of me. In other words, you've memorized the minutia of the scriptures, but you've missed the fact that the scriptures speak of who I am. That's why we wonder today, you know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that even today, a veil lies over the, the face and the ears and the hearing of, of his Jewish brothers when Moses is read. And we know that, uh, we've talked about this before, but Isaiah 53, that, that great high chapter speaking of who Jesus was, the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, is not even read today in synagogue. They will not read it. So their eyes are blinded, and Paul knew this, and so he sort of turned it to his advantage. He says, then there arose a loud outcry in the scribes and the Phar- of the Pharisees. So the scribes, in case you weren't aware, were a subsect of the Pharisees. Uh, they arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So now all of a sudden the pendulum has swung. The Sadducees are against him, but there's less of them. And now the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, you know what, this is one of ours. So perhaps God's spoken to him, who knows? So let's not fight against God, just let it go. Let's just back away from it and walk away. But it says, verse 10, but uh, there arose a great dissension. This did not appease the Sadducees at all. In fact, the dissension became so great that the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force and bring him into the barracks. Imagine people being so angry and upset with you that they literally wanted to pull you apart limb from limb. This is the situation Paul was in, but God was divinely orchestrating and ordaining and protecting Paul, wasn't he? Notice it again in verse 10. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force and pull him into the barracks. God used that soldier and the army, the very Roman army that was persecuting the Jews, to pull Paul in and to save him. And isn't it interesting how God can take the very thing that's in front of you that might be an obstacle and turn it and use it for his purposes? And so he has done this here. And then in verse 11, But the following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Notice the Lord's sovereign care over Paul's life. Whenever the Lord or an angel speaks, we should always take notice. And if you've noticed, if you've ever looked at these things, you know that so often what they say, whether it's an angel or the Lord himself, is fear not when they first encounter this human being. So as Paul uh, hears these words, and we believe this was Jesus, not just the Lord, but it was Jesus himself, he says, be of good cheer, Paul. Why? 
Because Paul was downcast, he was downtrodden, he was probably a little depressed. Here's something that we probably miss about the Apostle Paul. His whole life, since he got saved, since he was converted in Acts chapter 9, he's roamed about freely. He's ministered where where God has told him to minister. He's traveled, I think on the third journey, we we said he traveled well over 5,000 miles, but you put all three journeys together and it's just thousands of miles by foot. And Paul has traveled, he's listened to the Spirit, he's preached, he's seen churches established, he's had this incredible ministry that probably nobody in the world has ever had since. And now he's bound up, he's caged. He's in prison. He's in the barracks of the the Roman legion. And he can't go out and do what he wants to do. And and by the way, his heart for his brothers is being crushed because at every turn they're rejecting him. Everything he says, they turn around against him. So no doubt he was a little downtrodden, but Jesus comes beside him and this is just like the Lord. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, and certainly Paul has done that. He's done it before and he's doing it right now. This was his heart, to come to Jerusalem and testify of the Lord. As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Helping Paul understand, you know, Paul, this isn't it. This isn't the end. You're not going to be here forever. You're going to Rome and you're going to be my witness in Rome. So notice as the Lord comes and he gives him these words, he gives him these instructions. I, I sort of compare this to what Jesus said when he was with the disciples and they were getting in the boat to go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. If you remember that. He said, let's get into the boat and go to the other side. But remember as they they were crossing the sea, the storm came up. And remember Jesus was laying asleep in the back of the boat and the, the disciples were so afraid and these were seafaring men that they went in the back and they woke Jesus up and they said, don't you even care that we are perishing? And Jesus stood up and he spoke to the storm and rebuked it. And in that moment, after the storm was calmed, and he turned to them and he says, where's your faith? And the implication was, didn't I say we are going to the other side of the, 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 the lake? And here Paul is hearing words from Jesus Don't worry, Paul, we're going to Rome. Now, if you just look ahead a little bit, you're going to see it's going to take Paul over two years to get to Rome. So it's a good thing to remember when the Lord speaks to us, to remember that word that the Lord has spoken. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard this from people in ministry just getting discouraged, wanting to quit, and then someone coming alongside and saying, okay, let's just stop for a moment. Let's go back to when you say you heard the Lord's voice, when he spoke to you, when he called you into ministry or he called you to this task. What was his word to you? And we need to remember what God has spoken in his word as well as to us personally. And so the Lord, no doubt, giving him this word. Back in Acts chapter 18, remember the Lord came alongside him when he was in Corinth and he said, now, The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The Lord coming alongside Paul, strengthening and encouraging him there. And then now here, the physical presence of Jesus. Paul must have needed it so desperately for Jesus to appear to him and to strengthen him and to encourage him. You see, God knows not only what we need to hear, but he knows when we need to hear it. That's why we need to be in the word, so that the Lord will speak to us, so that we can hear his voice when he speaks. So Jesus coming alongside Paul and comforting him and encouraging him. Verse 12, and when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. This is how angry they were with him. They wanted him dead at all costs. 
Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But when we are ready to kill him before he comes near, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. Isn't it interesting? The Holy Spirit was telling Paul all along the way, all along the journey, when you get to Jerusalem, chains and affliction await you, prepared you. And now Jesus comes alongside him in a time of discouragement and sort of builds him up and says, Paul, you've done a great job, but I have a new assignment for you. You've got to go to Rome and testify of me. Don't worry about that. I'm going to get you there. And right after the Lord speaks that word to him, he gets word, 40 assassins have taken an oath that they're going to kill you. You're not going to make it out of here alive. Isn't that just like the devil? The Lord speaks a word of encouragement and the devil comes right behind and said, ha, not so fast. I have power too. I have servants. I can come against you. So Paul, you know, thank God for relatives, right? This is one of those times when uh, his, his sister's son comes alongside. This is the only time that I'm aware of in the scriptures other than once uh, Paul was mentioned that he has, had a wife. This is the only time it's mentioned that he had a, a sister or other family. And so God used this situation as this whole thing was developing. Apparently this little boy was was around and he heard the whole thing. He's like, wait a minute, they're plotting against Uncle Paul. And so he runs in and he tells Paul what happened. And then Paul says, listen, you go tell the commander what happened. And so Paul is using the sound judgment that the Lord has given him to navigate this situation. And Paul was, you know, he was a human being. I'm sure he had the ability to, to look at the situation and say, this is an overwhelming situation. Uh, I don't know what to do. Look, send the boy up to the commander and let him tell him. Hopefully the commander will believe him. So this other uh, soldier took the boy and brought him to the commander, verse 18, and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, so that tells us it was a boy, not a a fully grown man. And he went aside and he asked privately, privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Listen, look at the discretion, right, of this commander. He could have just said right there in the court in front of all the men, but he he gently took this little boy aside and said, tell me in private, what what is it that you have to say? And so the the boy then related the story. The Jews have agreed to ask you that you bring Paul down to the council as though they were going to inquire more fully. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander uh, let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So the commander listened to the boy. And God, again, listen, God's hand orchestrating things, right? I'm going to get you to Rome, Paul. So watch what happens. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That would have been about nine o'clock. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, this was the, the commander, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him. Now, is that what really happened? No, that's not what really happened when we read the story. He's, he's sort of protecting his own hide here. He's saying, oh, I saw this injustice happening and I rescued the man. Uh, He did rescue him, but sort of at the last minute. And he says, uh, I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. 
And I found out that he, that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Brief letter, basically, Felix, this is your problem now. I'm passing him off. But you can see what God is doing. God, God spoke to him and said, I'm going to get you to Rome. What does he do? He gives him a military escort to Caesarea. How amazing is that? And it says, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul. They brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea, <clears throat> excuse me, and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So here's what's happened as we've gone to this story and come, come this far to the end of chapter 23. God has had his hand on Paul. God is divinely orchestrating behind the scenes Paul's steps. Now, God is not just doing this for Paul. Remember, I read at the beginning that these things are written for our learning. You see, God is doing this in our lives. I promise you who he is, whether you recognize it or not, he is doing that. And God cares about what happens in our lives. He cares about the little things as well as the big things. We've looked at, as we've gone through this passage, this issue of the conscience. God cares about our conscience. He cares about what we think. He cares about the standards by which we allow our brains to be programmed. Don't allow your brain to be programmed by TV, by the news, by some other form of information. Allow your, your mind to be washed and, and just built up. By God's word. Let this be what informs your thinking. I read an article recently uh, from a Christian perspective, and it said uh, it was a, had taken a survey of the church, and I don't know how they do these things and get this information. George Barna is a wizard of that. And, and the article was talking about that most Christians do not have a biblical worldview. So what that means, in case you're unfamiliar with the term, is that we see the world through the lens of Scripture. When I look at something happening on the news, when I look at what's happening politically, I'm looking at it through the lens of the Bible. What's happening in the world? What's happening globally is with the Russia thing and the blowing up the pipeline and the Ukrainians, does this have any impact on what's happening and what's coming from the end times? And when we see wrong and injustice happening, are we looking at it from God's Word? And saying, you know, like what, I think it's in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? And why do they rage against the Lord and his anointed? You see, that's what's happening. And, and it's not so much about liberals and conservatives and Republicans and Democrats. It's about the world is the world. And so we see the world through the lens of Scripture. That's what it means to have a biblical worldview. And this article went on to talk about the fact that some 70% of the church, by their survey, has no understanding of what it means to have a biblical worldview. Let me apply this a bit further. <clears throat> Abortion. Abortion's a political issue. No. Abortion's a biblical issue. God is the one who wrote on the sanctity of life. And you see, maybe if, if you were, you know, perhaps before you knew Christ or something, you had an abortion, you know, God will minister to you. But in terms of just understanding this political football called abortion, what that tells me is I don't want to vote as much, as much as it's possible. I don't want to vote for any person or any party that supports abortion. That, to me, that's a biblical mandate. That's a biblical worldview. It's not about politics. It's about morals. It's about what God has to say. So to have a biblical worldview says that I look at a situation, I look at people, I look at the circumstances, and I evaluate them through the word. When I'm in the supermarket, 
And I see a mom with five little kids and they're out of control and she's pulling her hair out. What's my biblical worldview? Can I help you? Or at the very least, can I pray for you? Even if I don't go up to her and say that, I can, in my mind, I can say, Lord, I pray, would you give grace to this dear mother right now? You see, that's a biblical worldview. What happens when we see a homeless person on the street? They're lost. They need Christ. That's how we see them. That's a biblical worldview. Not there's another homeless person littering the street and the, the inconvenience to the government and the problem they are to the city and all those things. That's not a biblical worldview. That's a human view. A biblical view is how does God see people? They are sheep needing a shepherd. That's a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview needs to inform our conscience. That affects how we think. Not, Not what news channel I listen to, the Bible. So there's the conscience. There's Jesus's personal encouragement to Paul. Paul, I'm with you. Be of good cheer. I've never left you. Later, the Lord said in the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I forget about that. I do. Some days I'm just walking through life and I'm, I'm trudging and I'm drudging. And I get discouraged and downtrodden because I've taken my eyes off the Lord and I've put my eyes on my circumstances. But the Lord says, no, look at me. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul was encouraged by a personal visit of Jesus. And I would say to you today, and as much as we have been working through this in the scriptures, when we read these verses, that the Lord himself is manifesting his presence to us. And he's saying to you and to me as well as to Paul, be of good cheer. I'm standing with you. The things that I've got for you, you're, you're going to finish. I'm going to get you to the finish line. And Paul's faithful life and witness, you know, Paul has stood this course for well over 20 years. He had been a missionary. His very first journey, remember, when he got to Lystra and Iconium, one of the the first cities that he was ministering in, what happened to him? They hated him so violently that they stoned him and left him for dead. This is how his ministry began. So here we are about 20, 22 years later, and what's Paul doing? He's still standing in there. He's still, Lord, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm a little discouraged. And Jesus comes and says, don't worry, Paul. Be of good cheer. I'm with you. I'm going to see you through this. As you've been faithful to me so far, continue to be faithful. I'm going to get you to Rome. You know that word I spoke to you in Acts 9 when you were saved, when I had Ananias come to you and I said, you must bear witness for me before kings and princes. I'm going to take you to Rome. And what's going to happen? He's going to come before Felix. He's going to come before King Agrippa. And he's going to make his way to Rome. And God's going to give him a personal escort. He's going to put him on a Roman ship. He's going to have guards with him protecting him, making sure he's fed and taken care of. I mean, God gives him personal servants who are military men to escort him to Rome. You see, God is sovereign and his care is providential. God doesn't overlook anything. He doesn't miss anything. He doesn't fall asleep like I do, like you do when you're supposed to be doing something important and you wake up and you're like, what just happened to the last 30 minutes or the last hour? You see, God doesn't do that. He's fully in control. He's fully uh, sovereign in everything. Sovereign means that God cannot be overridden. There is no power in the universe that can trump God. Satan might like you and me to think that he can, But he can't. It is impossible. You see, Satan serves the purposes of God, not the other way around. Satan is not the equal to Jesus. Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel. Ezekiel 14, Isaiah 28 tell us these things. Who was Satan? Where did he come from? Lucifer, the morning star. Perhaps even a worship leader in heaven. And he fell. And he became whom we now see portrayed as this the devil with, you know, in a red suit with pointy ears and a tail and a pitchfork. I guarantee you he's not like that. He's way worse. But he cannot stand up to God. He has no authority except what God allows him to have. The conscience, Jesus coming alongside to encourage Paul's faithful life and witness, which, by the way, is written for our encouragement that we are to keep going. 
Don't give up. When things happen, when health issues come, whatever it may happen, when financial issues hit us, what do we do? We keep going. We look to the Lord. We serve the Lord. We pray. We say, God, helpful, be, be merciful to me, a servant. And we ask God to lead us in the days that are ahead. God's sovereign and providential care. And I pray for you and for me that all of these things would be true in our lives. That we would have our consciences informed by the word of God. That we would have a biblical worldview. That we would lean into Jesus and listen to his voice. And that we would understand that God is in control. And he's never left you for one second. He's never vacated the throne. He's never forgotten about you and me. We're so grateful for who the Lord is in our lives. And listen, he wants to be even more. If you will just allow him to truly be the Lord, how much more could we experience of his love and his grace and his mercy if we are willing? Lord, thank you this morning for all of these things. Lord, may we learn these lessons. May we press into you. May we allow you to minister to us and build us up. And Lord, may we, like Paul, be a faithful servant and a a consistent witness. And Lord, not to get discouraged when we blow it, when we make a mistake, when we sin. Lord, help us just to, to get up. And like Paul said when he said, I've lived in good conscience before God and men, that we would Repent when we need to repent and that we would admit our wrong when it happens. That we would confess our sin to one another, as your word says, when that needs to happen. That we would ask forgiveness from one another, as it says, to leave your gift at the altar and to go and to seek to be reconciled. Lord, that we would be those kinds of people. That we would begin to see this world as you see this world. And that we would have the same heart that you have for people. God, we pray this morning that we would be able to draw near to you. Because your word says if we draw near to God, you will draw near to us. We love you, Lord. We bless you. If there's any Lord listening today who have never believed or trusted in you, Jesus, we pray that this would become the moment for them where they would just reach out by faith and say, Lord, I want to know you. Lord, forgive me. I want that kind of life, a life of forgiveness, a life of faith, a life of trust. And if that's you this morning, would you just tell him that and ask him to come in and to to cleanse your heart and to take up residence and to, to be with you because he has promised unequivocally that he would be, that he would do that for you. And if you've done that, then know this, that you are now a son or a daughter of God. Thank you, Lord. And as we sing to you now, Lord, would you just meet us in Jesus' name. Amen.